Welcome to our mindfulness podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. We usually begin with bowing or gasho, then we prepare to sit, and we will sit for approximately 10 minutes. And then we will either stand and walk for another five minutes to kind of get blood into our legs again and and, uh, relax our muscles. And then we'll sit for another 10 approximately. And then we will chant, which is another form of meditation. Uh, We focus on the characters and we pronounce the sounds as a group. And it's a kind of a ritual of oneness. And then after that, we'll have a short Dharma talk of about five to 10 minutes. And then we'll close with Gasho. And this also includes offering incense. We offer incense, but you could also light the incense before the service starts. And this is kind of the program uh, of how our meditation services proceed. And so we will be getting underway today uh, with our program. Thank you very much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, It's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply. Let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world. Waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most, in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts. All right, this completes our standing meditation. Please return to your seats and we'll prepare for our second seated meditation. Again, uh, posture's the same. Uh, try to have a nice straight back, shoulders relaxed, um, eyes half open, half closed, uh, breathing down into your stomach using your diaphragm. Um, place your hands uh, in front of your lower abdomen and we will begin our second seated meditation at the sound of the bell.
please join me in God's show. Namandats, 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 namandats. We will now have sutra chanting. A sutra is a sacred scripture from Buddhism. These originated long ago in India and in China. The text that we chant is actually Chinese, a translation from Sanskrit originals. Is it necessary to understand the meaning of what we're chanting? Of course, not at the outset. We don't know anything about it when we first begin. But I believe that we should aim to understand what the sutra is teaching us. We should have a basic awareness of its content. These are the teachings of our Shin Buddhist tradition, after all. For that reason, we provide in the Shin Buddhist service book some pages of explanation and some English translations. What we experience by chanting, I would say, has three aspects. The first aspect is meditative, like sitting or standing or breathing. Chanting forces us to focus our attention on the present moment, and it helps to calm our minds. Second, there is a ritual aspect. We are reenacting something that's taken place countless times over the centuries. We are connecting with the many followers of our Buddhist tradition, who have chanted these same words, and we are gaining a sense of oneness with the other people who are chanting at this time, perhaps listening to this podcast. Third, there is a learning aspect. This is to gain a little bit of knowledge of what the meaning of the characters that we chant are, and we do that separately, I would say, from actual chanting. We will now chant the Junidai found on page 49. Junidai, or Twelve Verses of Reverence, originated in the Mahayana tradition of India during the time of the Pure Land Master Nagarjuna, around 150 CE. The verses were later translated into the Chinese text that we chant today. Like the larger Sutra and the Amida Sutra, the text of Junidai describes the spiritual qualities of Amida and the Pure Land using poetic language. Please read the translation of the Junidai found on page 51, which describes in detail what the 12 verses of reverence actually means. We will now chant the Junidai.
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts. I'm Jim Pollard. Here is an essay that I wrote entitled Bugs, Germs, and People. We encounter bugs frequently, even if we would rather avoid them. Although individually tiny, they exist in huge numbers, and their influence is pervasive. The weight of all the termites on Earth is estimated to be 500 million tons, which is more than the weight of all 7 billion human beings. From this, we may be led to ask, are humans really the dominant life form on this planet? Our judgment about bugs depends on whether they appear to be beautiful or ugly, and whether they have economic value or are viewed as pests. The ladybug is an ideal insect. 
Not only are ladybugs harmless to humans and darned cute, they prey on crop-destroying aphids. Honeybees might be perceived as dangerous rather than cute, but their economic value as pollinators is immense. Bees are crucial to our food supply. Butterflies delight us with their beauty and with their life cycle of metamorphosis from caterpillars. And who hasn't been inspired by the amazing architectural creations of spiders? Only a few bugs are viewed in a positive light. For most of the others, our negative reactions include fear, annoyance, and disgust. We may attempt to avoid killing bugs that are beautiful or beneficial, while not hesitating to kill those seen as ugly and harmful. As Buddhists, this should lead us to reflect. Perhaps we can pause before killing other life forms, even the ones that we view as dangerous or disgusting. Around the house, I try to catch and release the crawlers that I find, but capturing becomes difficult if they are airborne. If I see a bug indoors that could pose a danger, then I usually end up killing it while feeling regret. Furthermore, countless bugs are being killed to provide me with food. The least I can do is to be mindful of the sacrifices that are represented in the food on my plate, in the clothes that I wear, and in the buildings that shelter me. Now consider microorganisms, the tiny life forms that exist on us and in us. The popular expression for them is germs. Well before the coronavirus pandemic, one of the most effective ways of selling a product to Americans was to claim that it kills germs. The advertising slogan has long been effective because of the widely held view that all microorganisms are bad and must be destroyed. Yet, science has revealed that the microorganisms living on us and in us play an essential role in keeping us healthy. The human body is home to myriads of bacteria, far more than I would have guessed, amounting to about three pounds of our body mass. Our resident bacteria, comprising some 10,000 different species, perform many crucial functions for us, such as making vitamins, preventing infections, fortifying the immune system, and helping us to digest food. Rather than wanting to do away with our body's germs, we should learn how to cultivate those that are beneficial. Here's a quote from a magazine article. Looked upon in this way, the human body turns out to be a vast, highly mutable ecosystem. Each of us seems more like a farm than like an individual assembled from a rule book of genetic instructions. Medicine becomes a matter of cultivation, as if our bacterial cells were crops in a field." End quote. Of course, some types of bacteria cause serious illnesses like cholera, plague, and tuberculosis. But those are rare exceptions to the favorable interactions that we have with most of them. I would like to think that this body is all mine in some sense, but it is home to tiny life forms that do not share my DNA. This body is able to live 
only because it incorporates countless microorganisms that perform functions necessary for my survival. By the same token, these life forms could not exist if I did not find food and water, get adequate sleep, and drive safely on my way to and from the temple. Given the reciprocal relationship, it's wrong to think that I have a self that could exist independently of the microorganisms. In light of this beautiful mutualism, it would be more accurate to describe me as us. We have a much harder time accepting that we are interdependent with microorganisms that cause diseases, but I think that is where the teachings of the Buddha lead us. In my ignorance, I divide the world into dualities like friend and enemy, sickness and health, germs and me. Buddhism teaches the transcendence of all dualities. A scientific understanding of the role of microorganisms did not exist in ancient India, but the Buddha perceived correctly that the self is sustained by unseen causes and conditions. He realized that the arising and perishing of the self reflects a deep connection with the whole of existence. In matters of medicine and public health, it is proper to rely on what science can do to repair the body and to save lives. But in terms of a spiritual path, one can envision two ways of responding to an illness. Either we can imagine doing battle with it, or we can become one with it. To take the first approach is to see the disease as an outside enemy, which might help in certain situations, but it may amplify our distress if the disease proves to be incurable. Taking the second approach of becoming one with the disease means accepting the reality of illness and not seeing it as something foreign. Then there is no conflict between the sick self and the healthy self. Gautama Buddha exemplified this teaching during his final illness, which may have been caused by microorganisms in the food that he was given. He told his disciple Ananda that no one should blame the cook for his death, and that it was an act of great merit to give a Buddha his last meal before his parinirvana. The Buddha realized oneness with all living things. The existence of microorganisms, both beneficial and harmful, was unknown in his day, but I believe that his sense of oneness with all of life would have included germs. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Jim Pollard. Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This program is copyright 2022 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved.